Well, we are in Luke chapter 8 still, and over the last two weeks we've seen Jesus really as a new and better Jonah calm a storm over the Sea of Galilee by his word, then free a man possessed by a thousand demons again by his word, and in turn judge those same demons he had cast out by sending them to the abyss by way of a herd of pigs. And though uh, it's been a while since we talked about it, all of these events are examples of what the good soil of the parable of the sower actually looks like. And this week's passage is no different. In fact, it builds on and it moves on from the demon-possessed man held in chains to a faithful father, as well as two women who themselves are held in the chains of disease and death. Again, we're going to pick it up. And chapter 8, beginning with verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that through your spirit, we might have eyes to see and ears to hear from your son, to grow into him and to follow him where he leads. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, in verse 40, we read that when Jesus returned from that area of the Gerasenes, that Gentile, fully Gentile area across the Sea of Galilee where the demon-possessed man was, uh, the Jewish crowd that had previously been following him in Galilee was waiting for him and welcomed him back. Now, this is in con- contrast to the people of the Gerasenes that asked Jesus to leave after he had freed the demon-possessed man and cast the demons into the pigs. And among the crowds, there was this man by the name of Jairus, Uh, who was a ruler or an elder of the synagogue in that area. And that meant that though he was a 
a local leader and probably a man of some, some heaviness, some importance. Uh, he wasn't part of the religious elite of the scribes, or, or, nor was he a member of, of the Pharisees. And I say this uh, because up to this point in the gospel, the two gro- groups most opposed to Jesus were the scribes and the Pharisees, who were self-styled uh, shepherds. They called themselves this, the shepherds of God's people. Well, Jairus, like the demon-possessed man from last week, he falls at Jesus' feet, showing a disposition of honor and respect, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. And he implored Jesus to come to his house. So whereas uh, the demons implored Jesus to leave them alone, and the villagers of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to just straight up go, Jairus implores Jesus to come into his home. As far as I can tell, Jesus never refused the offer of hospitality, whether it was Matthew the tax collector, and that's chapter 5, or Simon the Pharisee who was skeptical of Jesus and ultimately judged against Jesus, that's chapter 7, or Zacchaeus in chapter 19. If someone invited Jesus into his home, he would go. He would accept the invitation. It's like what John says in John chapter 1. In fact, we we said this earlier in the service. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of, of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So God does not force humanity to figure it out or to get our lives straight and and to redeem ourselves and all that kind of stuff in order to come to Him. No, He comes to us first. He does this initially from Genesis 1 in His creation, but He continues to do this all the way through Scripture. He comes to us first, even in our sin and our misery. And it's the difference, for example, between how Abraham received God and his angels in Genesis 18 and 19, if you know that passage where he, he made them a meal and sacrificed for them, versus how the city of Sodom received God's angels in the very next scene. It's like when Jesus sent out the 12 on their first missionary journey in Luke chapter 9, which is actually next week's passage. He tells them before they go that if a house received them, the 12, they should stay there and bless it with their presence because they were proclaiming the kingdom of God's arrival. And in turn, that house received that word. That house received the gospel. But if a home or a whole city, and again, think of Sodom and its lack of hospitality for the two angels in Genesis 19, to put it mildly, then the disciples were to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them. That is, and we'll talk about this more next week, but it's basically a public showing. It's a a sign to the town. Dust is a a symbol for death, going all the way back to Genesis 3. That's why when you see people covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes and covering themselves in dust, they're they're saying, we're dead. We recognize that we're, we're dead. So that by their rejection, shaking the dust off their sandals, that by their rejection of Israel's Messiah, like Sodom, they would not escape his coming judgment. Okay, so the reason Jairus wanted Jesus to come to his house, it's simple enough. The man had an only child, a daughter, who was about 12 years old, and she was dying. 
And he thought Jesus could heal her, and then Jesus agreed to go. Now, on the way, crowds were pressing in on Jesus. And in my mind, as I imagine the scene, this is like how, say, a celebrity uh, without uh, bodyguards guards might be mobbed by fans. And, and as Peter's comment later in the passage seems to indicate, these people, these crowds were definitely invading Jesus' personal space and reaching out and touching him. And it's telling that Jesus was not bothered by this. I absolutely would be bothered by this, but he was not bothered by this, and he did not try to keep them at bay. So as we see here, even in these little scenes, Jesus, the light of the world, wanted to tabernacle among his people. He wanted to be close to them. Now, on the way to Jairus' house, Luke tells us about another woman. Far from being two random events that just happened to coincide, Luke pairs the 12-year-old girl who was dying with the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had spent everything she had on physicians with no results. So without going into uh, the biology of all this, this woman's disease basically hit her at her ability to have children. So she was, for all intents and purposes, barren. But unlike other women in the Bible who suffered from barrenness, the nature of her disease was such that it rendered her perpetually unclean. And therefore, she was unable to enter the temple for worship and in turn kept at a distance from God and from other people too. So her uncleanness put her on the margins of Jewish life. So much like the uncleanness of demons that forced the man and the garrisons to live among the tombs, so this woman also carried symbolic death with her everywhere she went. And yet, like the demon-possessed man, she was compelled to seek out Jesus. That Luke pairs these two women together, one not yet old enough to have children, but on the cusp, at least as Jewish culture would have seen this young woman, and one who was apparently in the prime of her life but was unable to have children, it's important. It's important. So whereas we, we could read, at least in a certain sense, and I do not want to press this too far, the previous passage of the demon with the demon-possessed man, you could see him in a certain sense, really in a very clear sense, as bearing the curse of Adam who is perpetually in the shame of nakedness, perpetually living among the dead, sometimes literally bound in chains, certainly spiritual chains to demons, spiritually bound to demons who in turn, those demons perpetually accused him of the sin he carried, and in response, he perpetually attempted to stone himself, the most futile attempt to redeem or to account for his own sin. Well, these women, in a sense, bear the curse of Eve the mother of the living. And I think Arthur Just's insight on the pairing of these two women is very insightful. This great Lutheran Old Testament scholar, he writes this, the woman's malady hindered the divinely created way in which the human race is to continue in the fallen world, awaiting the life to come. You can compare that against 1 Timothy 2. Therein lies a link to the imminent death of the 12-year-old girl. When girls die at 12 and women have such a flow of blood, it is the work of the enemy of life. And Jesus, Mary's child, God's son, 
is the Creator's power for the restoration of life in the fullest sense. Even though in heaven people neither marry nor are given in marriage, that's Luke 20, so long as this old order stands, marriage and parenting shall continue and be sanctified by the new life created by the word of Jesus. So we tend to read this passage as merely unfortunate realities of living in a fallen world that have hit two different females randomly at different points in their lives. But Luke ties the two women together as an enduring attacks from the enemy of life, from Satan himself. In that way, they are related, though clearly suffering from different things, to the demon-possessed man. Now think of it this way. After the fall into sin, God promised to bring about the redemption of the world through Eve's offspring. That's not figurative. That's procreation. And ever since Genesis 3, God's people were looking generation after generation for that promised Messiah. That is the entire trajectory of the Old Testament. It's why by the time you get to Revelation 12, it pictures the birth of the Messiah as Israel, the mother with 12 stars around her, giving birth to her son with a great dragon poised to eat the child. So just as the demon-possessed man was bound in chains, marked by uncleanness and death, and cast out from his Adam-like role, so too these women bound, attacked by Satan in some ways in their Eve-like roles. Now, in preparing for this sermon and thinking through these issues, I've certainly felt the cultural influence that arises from the last 60 years of, of the sexual revolution that has totally denigrated, if not utterly destroyed in some parts of America, not merely the God-given roles of men and women as God's image bearers who are different. We are different, yet an equal partnership given to one another in order to have dominion over the world together. And in turn, the God-given roles of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers that are good and continue despite the fall and are necessary. It's the influence that says, don't you dare. Don't you dare reduce women down to their biology and motherhood. An influence that has taught, among other things, that biology doesn't matter. Men and women are the same. Sex and procreation are two different things and are only related if we want them to be. That the path to freedom and fulfillment is found in individual autonomy and economic prosperity. And so marriage and children are either a hindrance to your happiness or they are an optional enrichment to your happiness should you choose to have such things. But even then, you may terminate them if they no longer fit with your happiness like an unwanted business contract. Now, to put the shoe on the other foot, it occurred to me this week, and not for the first time, but I really started thinking about this this week, that I cannot remember any sort of teaching as a kid or a young adult that really encouraged me to think of my future in terms of being a husband and a father. Now, maybe it was there. You know, I heard that teaching in one ear in one ear and out the other. But I'm guessing maybe not. You know, regardless, no male my age thought seriously about or looked forward to being a husband and a father as a significant 
and defining part of their future life. So even in conservative circles like I grew up in that were, you know, supposedly focused on the family, going back upwards of 40 years, we were held captive by the reigning individualism of our times. And to my young adult mind, the roles of spouse and parent seem punitive. And for those who got married young, you know, 25 or 26, you know, at the end of the first quarter of life, if you live to be 100, or maybe if we're taking the data on lifespans a bit more seriously, at the end of the first third of life, People got married either because they weren't the college types or, to use a euphemism from the left, poor planning. Now, in the back of my mind, I assume that, of course, I will eventually take on those roles. And for my generation, it's just the thing you're supposed to do, though that clearly is no longer a shared assumption among younger generations. But not until I had had my fun and done what I wanted to do. Then... Sure, maybe I will consider those things. And even after I was married, it didn't occur to me that I might very well soon be a father until Meg told me when I was 31 that I wasn't getting any younger. And it was a shock to me. It was a shock to me to hear that. But she was right. And in a certain sense, she was calling out my selfish immaturity that had no thought to the future no thought to Genesis 1 and 2 and the future of the human race and with children. So even as a young Christian, even as a single seminary student training to be a pastor, being a husband and father and a father were not serious concerns. And I didn't see these roles as bound up with what God had created me to be as a human. And it didn't occur to me till much later that I should want these roles, that I should want them and feel privileged for having them when, by that time, many of my friends wanted these things, but for various reasons could not have them. Now, the goal was to go to school and obtain some degrees and get a job and live out whatever success I could find. So in my mind, my future was entirely fixated on my desires as an autonomous individual, or as Jerry Bowyer laughingly calls it, Satanism. But as Genesis 1 and 2 clearly teach, God intended for humanity to live in productive community together in light of Him. So we were intended to work and produce, and if you think about it, you you can't actually be a consumer of other people's goods until you yourself have produced something someone else wants. And these communities are grounded in the Genesis 1 and 2 institution of marriage. And of course, in Genesis 3, Satan says what? No, man, life is found in freedom from those constraints. And what we see in our text then is something very countercultural to our own times. And even we feel a hesitation in trying to read the text like this. And it's why we so easily miss what's happening here. Jesus, just as God has done multiple times throughout Scripture, restores two women to the fundamental goodness of their roles as women. So to those who think God does not care about women, they're just not reading the text. So it's not merely that that Jairus feared the loss of his only daughter. I'm sure, I'm sure he trusted that at her death, God would have her. He was a good Jewish man. No, I think it's like all good parents. He wanted his daughter to grow into maturity. 
and all the beauty and goodness and even heartache and pain that comes as a wife and as a mother. Now, for the other woman, it's not merely that she had a disease. Her disease had barred her from something that is a unique gift and a privilege and that women rightly should desire, even as her disease, which was clearly manageable, you know, in some, some sense, I mean, she'd had it for 12 years and was not posing an immediate threat to her life. It had kept her at a distance from God. That's why she had been willing to give everything for a cure. Now, we read in verse 44 that the woman came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, literally one of the four tassels that hung on the bottom of his robe, and immediately she was healed. So that, that tassel that she touched, clearly, it's not magical, right? It was a very common thing for good and faithful Jews, both male and female, to wear. In fact, Numbers 15, 38 and following says this. This is God speaking. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So to have these tassels on your robe was at God's command for every Jew. And so at the very least, it's part of the testimony that Jesus kept every last bit of the law of Moses. And it's also poignant that the woman touched one of the symbols of Jesus' holiness. He is the Holy One of Israel, and his heart was completely set on God. And it seems to me that in order to touch the tassel, like Jairus um, had reached out and touched for, for, for Jesus, she had to be on her knees. She had to have that same disposition as Jairus, on her knees, and at the very least, lying on the ground to get at it. So she knew she was unclean, and so not wanting to make Jesus unclean, she touches the tassels. She's sneaking in there, and in turn, like the lepers before her or like the demon-possessed man, she was made clean and healed of her disease instantly. So Jesus knew that this had happened, and he said, hey, someone touched me, and I perceive that power has gone out of me. Now, don't read this as if Jesus was like a gas station pump who realized that someone had taken some fuel from him. It's rather that the Holy One of Israel knew that uncleanness was in his midst. He knew it and knew that by way of touch, like the angel in Isaiah 6, when the burning coal from the altar of God's throne who touched Isaiah's lips and cleansed him, Jesus knew that he had cleansed someone. And when the woman knew that she could not hide from Jesus like Eve could not hide from God, she confessed to what she had done. And in her desperation and her uncleanness, she had gone among the clean and the Holy One of Israel. And she confessed that she had been healed. Now in response, Jesus says, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, quick things on this. Two quick things on this, excuse me. First, though the text does not say it, 
I think it's very possible that this woman might have been foreign. She might have been foreign. Now, there's no husband. There's no family with her. And the passage reads very much like the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 and following, where God says, In those days, that is, with the coming of the kingdom of God, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And what's more, Jesus addresses the woman with the same kind of tenderness and kindness of Boaz to Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, my daughter. Now, second, don't make the mistake of of reading uh, his phrase, your faith has made you well, as people so often do. Uh, It's not faith in itself, as if faith is just a strong, hopeful, tenacious feeling that good things are going to happen. That's faith in yourself. And again, that's Satanism, right? No, proper faith always has God as its object. So this this woman who had sold everything to try and find a cure has now gone to the true physician, the great healer, Jesus, and found life. But he doesn't just heal her. Like with the paralytic of chapter 5 or the man with a withered hand in chapter 6, by pronouncing the benediction over her, Go in peace. He's indicating that he has redeemed her from her uncleanness and made her right with God. Now, even as he was saying this, someone from Jairus' house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So while Jesus had healed one daughter, another daughter had died. And in response to the news, Jesus said, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And again, please do not read this as so many modern Americans do, as in, just have a strong, hopeful feeling, Jairus. I can feel it. Can you feel it? Good things are going to happen. That is such an utter nonsense statement. It's irrational stupidity when faced with the news of the death of a child. It's in the face of things like death that the true object of our faith is actually revealed. And everyone, everyone, even the most ardent atheists, have placed their faith in something, in something, most often themselves. So Jesus encouraged the man, like in the parable of the sower, despite the very real trial he is going through, and I can't imagine, to keep his eyes on Jesus. And upon entering the house, Jesus only allowed the inner circle of Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents to enter. They would all serve as witnesses to what Jesus was about to do. Now, we can only imagine that the extended family then is surrounding the house, and and they're weeping and mourning. And as Jesus enters, he says, don't weep. Don't weep. She's, She's not dead but sleeping. At which point, they laughed at him. And this was not a, ha-ha, good one, all right, Jesus. It's not that kind of laugh. No, it's more of the, uh, the sardonic, mocking laugh of someone who thinks the other person is an idiot or is a crazy person. <laughs> you serious? Is this guy serious? Sleeping? <sighs> She's dead, man. How can you joke at a time like this? Well, Jesus' choice of language is very purposeful. 
He's not trying to skirt the issue of death whatsoever or try and lighten the load by any means. He's telling us something important about how he transforms it. With him and his own coming resurrection, death has lost its sting, its victory. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, for those in Christ to be laid in a coffin is no worse than laying down to bed to sleep, confident that we will wake to new life in the morning. Christians are reminded of their own coming, death and resurrection in Christ every single night. And I hope tonight you think about that. So instead of the previous woman reaching out to Jesus, here Jesus reaches out to the dead girl and takes her by the hand and says, Child, arise. And her spirit returned to her, much like God breathing life into Adam and like the woman before her, she was immediately healed, and she got up. Jesus then directed that something be, should be given to her to eat. And now on the one hand, this is incredibly practical, and I love this about Jesus. The girl's been dead a while. Chances are that she was hungry. I mean, Jesus is, is as hospital as they come. Get the girl something to eat. Come on, y'all. But on the other hand, there's more to it than that. So just as new life in Christ always entails peace with God, that's why we will end this time together with the passing of the peace. New life in Christ always entails peace with God. It also entails eating with God. So what was lost in the garden by Eve taking and eating has now been restored by Jesus who says, take and eat. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper it is a reminder that what happened in Genesis 3 has been undone. And he says, freely come eat my children. Now, her parents, of course, were amazed, but Jesus told them not to tell anyone what had happened. And I think the reason Jesus gives this instruction is related to what he says in Luke chapter 11 and other places in the Gospels. He says this, this generation is an evil generation. Talk about a tough preacher. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So while there is no doubt that the raising of this young woman would get Jesus a tremendous amount of attention, like his raising of Lazarus in the book of John before his uh, last week of ministry, it would not be enough for those clamoring for signs and wonders. It just would not be, especially Israel's leadership like the scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. So the sign that Jesus will openly give that the world can judge is his own death and resurrection because no greater sign could be given. And even as, as Jonah's life was a remarkable sign for the people of God, I mean, think about it. Jonah wrote down the events of his life as prophecy and it was well known. At least it, it seems clear that Amos and Jeremiah were very familiar with it. Still, evil Israel did not turn back to God and was sent off into exile in Assyria. So too would the Israel of Jesus' day for not receiving the better Jonah. 
Well, this brings us full circle then on the parable of the sower. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the question, who is the good soil? Luke has strung together four examples of what the good soil looks like. The disciples in the boat witnessing Jesus calm a storm with his word. And though they believe, they wonder who he is. There's the demon-possessed Gentile who was restored to his humanity and became a disciple and evangelist for Jesus. There's the woman, arguably, though I could be wrong, but arguably another Gentile who sought out Jesus in her desperation, looking for more than healing, and was willing to give everything she had, risking the anger of the crowds for bringing her uncleanness among them, her death among them. And then there's Jairus, a, a local leader and elder of his people who walked out of step with the Pharisees and scribes, which, by the way, was really a big deal, incredibly courageous, by trusting Jesus, inviting him to his home and listening to his word. So the good soil is not defined by class or race or language or cultural or, or superficial morality. No, they are just as Jesus says they are. They are those who hear his word, respond to it in repentance, and follow in his footsteps. We're going to see this work itself out as the disciples next week are sent out into Israel to see who the good soil is. More on that next week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, Jesus the Christ, and we pray that he would work deep in our hearts, minds, and feet through your spirit. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever, and we trust that you will do just as you have promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen.